We're going to be talking this morning about a very important, sensitive, misunderstood, delicate issue. We're going to be talking about wives and the S word. I want you to know that I've been in much prayer about this. I approach this subject with great sensitivity, as much as I can muster. I'm trying to be aware and being sensitive to my own male bias and the few fragments of chauvinism that yet remain in me. I'm trying to be sensitive to what our culture is saying and doing and the influence it has. I'm trying to be very, very sensitive to you ladies, those of you especially who are married and uh, have been uh, looked upon, have been dealt with, have struggled with this issue to one degree or another. I was talking last Friday afternoon with one of the ladies in our church and we we're, were broaching the subject, and she was, we were talking just a little bit about it, and she said that she's had great victory. The Lord has brought her to the place where now she can even say the S word. <laughs> so I want to encourage you. This is not just for the ladies, not just for wives, but it's also for husbands. And ladies, I want you to know, and I want you to be um, blessed by the reality that the passage under discussion this morning, Paul is only going to devote three verses to you, and yet he devotes eight verses to the husbands. And next week we're going to be speaking to the men. So, gals, lest you feel put upon this morning, understand that the guys are going to get their turn next week. The whole context of our passage... As you'll remember, and I, I, I want to be, I'm intentionally redundant because this has got to be continued in our thinking, is verse 18, being filled, being kept filled with the Holy Spirit. We can't obey God. We cannot fulfill the things that He desires, that He wants to do in us and through us uh, unless we are being kept filled with the Holy Spirit. I cannot impress upon you enough the importance of us being filled with the Holy Spirit on a continuous basis. As a result of being filled, Paul says that there are three, three tremendous effects in our life. And those effects include many, many other things. But three of those three general categories of effects are, first of all, he says you'll be finding yourself rejoicing. You'll be singing to other people. You'll be making music in your heart to the Lord. You'll be a rejoicing individual. And it won't, again, be something you have to crank up and generate on your own. It'll just well up from inside of you, because why? The Holy Spirit is working in His fullness in you. The second aspect, or the second effect, is that you'll be a person who is truly thankful You'll begin to look at life with a whole different perspective. You'll look at your situations, everything that's happening, 
and you'll be a person who is expressing thanksgiving on a continuing basis. Why? Because it's some mechanical thing? No, because the Lord is doing something in you. Because you're filled with His Spirit. And thirdly, you'll be a person who understands and is able to operate, implement, if you will, uh, the principles of biblical submission in whatever relationship you find yourself. Now, verse 21, we looked at in some, some degree last week. And Paul says that, uh, that we should be uh, submitted to one another out of reverence for Christ. We said that word submit or submitted Kupotasso uh, is a, an old military word, if you remember, and it means to rank or arrange under. And you know, you understand the military. There, they, there are ranks, there are arrangements in terms of, of if you're a private or a corporal or a sergeant or whatever. But there's a principle there that we rank or arrange ourselves under that the Christian who is spirit-filled arranges or ranks himself under his brothers and sisters in Christ. Humbles himself, humbles herself. Well, verse 21 not only tells us the third effect, but it is a transitionary verse to open up the next section to us in which Paul describes to us three major kinds of relationships that are vital to human functioning. The husband-wife relationship, the parent-child relationship, and the employer-employee or the master-slave relationship from that context. So that without those three relationships, we don't have society. Society is chaotic. And so Paul is going to take this principle from verse 21, a mutual submission, and he's going to apply it to those three major categories of relationships that are vital for society to function, for there to be any kind of order. And I want to look this morning at that first aspect that he describes from verse 22 through 24 and dealing with wives. Now, among the worst tragedies of our day, and I think you'll agree with me, is the progressive death of the family as we know it as a traditional unit. The family is passing off the scene. The family today is not what it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, certainly 50 years ago. The family is dying. There are very, very many and great pressures upon the family unit. The family unit is the fundamental building block of society, of all culture. Some of these pressures include uh, marital infidelity, the exaltation of sexual sin at, at every uh, juncture, homosexuality, abortion, the whole women's liberation movement, delinquency, the sexual revolution in general. All of these are contributing factors to the unraveling of the very fabric of the home. And while those things are, are, are obvious and we see the effects of them, there is one other element that is absolutely vital to understand. And without an understanding and an implement, implementation of this other element, the family is sure to die. 
and with it, society. And that is this, to understand, to know, to implement the roles and the responsibilities of each member of the family. And today, beloved, even in the church, there is great confusion as to the roles and the responsibilities for the wife, for the husband, for the children, for parents, etc. Great deal of confusion as to these matters, and you see the resultant chaos uh, that uh, affects the marriages. Without a proper basis of authority for relationships. In other words, without something that's an absolute standard that gives us the design. Without something like that, people grope around in the darkness, literally looking, trying to figure out, they're experimenting to try to make something work in terms of a relationship. Now, all of us have this deep, deep human need to be in relationship. Are you aware of that? We have a hunger. It's built into us. You cannot escape it. People try to escape it. They try to be loners. They try to deny these very real personal needs to be in relationship. And they, they're blunted and stunted in their growth. But we have this tremendous need. I have this need to, to know and to be known, to be in relationship, in relationships that are satisfying, relationships that are fulfilling, relationships that are blessing to my life and vice versa. Can you relate to this? Am I making sense? But you see, without an authoritative basis, without a standard, we don't know how to make these things work. There's no structure. There's no direction. There's no perspective. Everybody's just groping around in some vague kinds of attempts by whatever means they can devise. And, and, and you know as well as I do, when you experiment like that, it always leads to chaos. You just don't stumble into what's true and right. It's not our human nature to do this stuff. Do you know that? It's not our human nature to do it. It's our human nature to do just the opposite. You're not just going to stumble into this. You've got to have your eyes opened and you got to read it, you got to study it and say, oh, that's how it works. And even then, you wrestle with it. Those of you that are married understand what I'm talking about. Of course, you single adults right now are thinking, oh, piece of cake, I could do that. <laughs> you see, the Bible is God's standard. The Word of God is the standard. And yet, while we still have the Bible, while the church has the Bible, has God's standard, there is still great confusion today in the church about the roles of husbands and the roles of wives, the responsibilities of them. Beloved, divorce 
is too common in the church. Let me say that one more time. Divorce is too common in the church today. That ought not to be. And even if you're part of a marriage that has managed to avoid the tragedy of divorce, there are many marriages that are nevertheless characterized by unfaithfulness, disrespect, deceit, self-centeredness, materialism. You see, things that still tear away at the fabric. There are still many marriages, though the people aren't divorced, that they don't really understand and they're not working hard to fulfill and to live out biblical roles and biblical responsibilities. God made these relationships. He designed them. He knows how they work best. And as Marie shared with us this morning, the word that, that she gave me that I shared with you, God is, is, is pleading with his people, won't you receive from me? This is like we plead with our children. Why don't you listen to me? These things absolutely devastate relationships. But not only do they devastate the relationships, they devastate the children who are the offspring of those relationships. God says, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. Think about that. Is God being mean and cruel? No, he wants us to understand how serious he is about his model and his design. We cannot afford to trivialize what he has said. And when we do trivialize it, there is a price, and it's a horrendous price. The father's sins, the parent's sins, are visited to the next generations. So it's very, very important for us to understand not only who we are, what we are, what God, what's God's design for us. It's important to know what the Bible says about marriage. It's important to know what the Bible says about the roles and the responsibilities of each partner in the marriage, and not only just to know them, but, beloved, to implement them. To implement them. And as we do so, Ray and Kristen dedicated their little boy, baby boy this morning. We do this regularly in our service. I get five dedications this weekend. And in each situation, I pray for those parents. God, let these parents live their lives as godly examples for their children. Because these kids are going to pick up from you. You can talk to them till you're blue in the face. And you know as well as I do how are those words go right through this ear and out the other one but they're going to be around you for 25 years probably. What are they picking up? What are they picking up? Are they understanding what it means to be a godly woman? Are they understanding what it means to be a godly man?
With respect to women, a little background. In New Testament times, women were thought of as little more essentially than servants, even in some places, some societies, as property. Women had a very, very low estate. Jewish men, for example, were known that to pray every morning, to pray and say, God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile. God, I thank you that I'm not a slave. God, I thank you that I'm not a woman. That was the mentality in, in Israel. And that mentality came out of a, a, a gross perversion of the divorce and remarriage laws laid down in Deuteronomy 24. And you know as well as I do, when the Pharisees talked to Jesus and Jesus set them straight on divorce and remarriage in Matthew's Gospel, they had perverted that whole passage, that whole understanding. Jewish men could divorce their wives and would divorce them for any reason. I mean, you burned the toast. And that was it. You're gone. They could write you a writ of divorcement. And it was to your shame. And so that's why the Jewish men would pray, God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, because the Gentiles were dogs in their eyes. God, I thank you that I'm not a slave, because that's the lowest scum on the earth. And I thank you that I'm not a woman. Because women were so incredibly abused. But it wasn't just limited to... to um, Israeli or, or, or Jewish society. Let me read to you some historical stuff I ran into this week. Let me talk to you about the Greek society. Now we're talking about New Testament times. In Greek society, the women's situation was terrible because concubines were common and a wife's role was simply to bear legitimate children and to keep house Greek men had little reason to divorce their wives. And their wives had no recourse against them. Because divorce was so rare, there was not even a legal procedure for it. This is in Greek culture. Demosthenes wrote, We have courtesans for sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. And we have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and being faithful guardians for our household affairs. Both male and female prostitution were incredibly rampant. In fact, it's from the Greek term, or the Greek word for prostitution, and general unchastity, the Greek word is porneia, from which we get our word pornography. Husbands typically found their sexual gratification with concubines and prostitutes. Whereas wives often, with the encouragement of their husbands, found sexual gratification with their slaves, both male and female. Prostitution, homosexuality, and many other forms of sexual promiscuity and perversion inevitably resulted in widespread sexual abuse of children. You see, there was no understanding of appropriate roles and responsibilities. They weren't oriented according to God's design and purpose. And you have the natural outworking of those kinds of 
philosophies and perspectives demonstrated ultimately into the lives of children. It was worse even in Roman society. Let me read to you about Roman society. Marriage was little more than legalized prostitution, with divorce being an easy legal formality that could be taken advantage of as often as desired. Many women did not want to have children because it ruined the looks of their bodies, and feminism became common. Desiring to do everything men did, some women went into wrestling, sword fighting, and various other pursuits traditionally considered to be uniquely masculine. Listen to this one. Some liked to run bare-breasted while hunting wild pigs. <laughs> Women began to lord it over men and increasingly took the initiative in getting a divorce. Now you see, you know what happened to the Greek great, glorious Greek age went right down the tubes. What about the disintegration of the Roman Empire? One of the greatest empires on the face of the earth in the history of man. They rotted from within. They rotted from within. They totally decayed, broke down. Beloved, the same thing is happening today in our culture. And why is it? It's because the basic building block of society is under attack. There are psychologists, there are schools of psychology, sociology, who are, who are absolutely putting forth, promulgating the idea that marriage as we know it should be, or uh, family as we know it should be done away with. That the state that the, the educated ones should be the ones in charge of raising our children. Destroy the family. There are people today who are putting forth the preposterous idea of homosexual marriages. Totally a perversion of God's order. Now don't misunderstand me. I believe that as Christians we need to demonstrate love and grace and compassion to a homosexual individual. We need to have God's perspective. Condemn homosexuality as a sin, as God does. But extend grace to the sinner. Minister to the sinner. But you see, the family is under attack. And the greatest point where it's under attack is the understanding of God's design and the roles and responsibilities of the husband and the wife. Paul, in our passage in Ephesians here, admonishes the church... to put off every kind of identification with the world around them. Let me read to you from chapter 4, verse 17. He says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Don't live any longer as the Gentiles do. 
live in total contrast to their corrupt, vile, self-centered way of living. Don't set up your own standards. Let's talk about this matter of, of submission with respect to the wives. I want you to read these verses with me. 22-24. Paul says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Let's talk about this. First of all, the first word in that whole section is what? Wives. Is there any qualifying remark to it? It's just simply wives, isn't it? I want you to see there's no qualification. It doesn't say, now, some of you wives. It doesn't say most wives. It just says wives. There is no qualifying uh, adjective, word, description. Wives, submit to your husbands. This applies to every Christian wife. This applies to every Christian wife. Regardless of social standing, regardless of education, regardless of intelligence, regardless of spiritual maturity, that's always a difficult one. Because very often you have a wife coming to Christ before her husband. Generally the women are much more involved in spiritual things. And the husband kind of lags behind. And so you get this wife maturing in terms of her her, her grasp, her, her depth of knowledge and so forth of the scriptures, her involvement in ministry and so forth. And here's this poor guy lagging behind. And the very thought that she should submit to this guy who doesn't know anything is absurd to her. No, you should still submit. And we'll just, we'll just describe this as we go. So regardless of your spiritual maturity, regardless of your giftedness, your age, your experience, or any other consideration, wives, every Christian wife, submit to your husband. Now I want you to notice something too. In verse 1 of chapter 6 and in verse 5 of chapter 6, the words obey are there. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. That word is not used with respect to the wife. The wife is not commanded to obey her husband. But she is instructed to submit. There is a qualitative difference there. I just thought I'd point that out to you. Now, what's the motive? What's the motive for submitting. Are you just going to submit for your own self? No. Paul says, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now what does he mean as to the Lord? Because we find the motivation there. 
First of all, he does not mean that you submit to your husbands the same way that you submit to the Lord. Let me describe this. The submission to the Lord is absolute. Paul describes himself as a what? Bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't he? As a bond slave. You and I, if we're Christians, we are to live our lives in total submission to him. We are bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. God does not intend for any wife to be a bond slave of her husband. She's not to be a slave. What that does mean when he talks about as to the Lord, it means this. Submit because it is part of your duty. Literally, it is an expression of your service and your submission to the Lord. God, I'm gonna, I want to submit to my husband because it brings you glory. Because it honors you. Because it's part of your design and your purpose. You're not doing it for your husband. You're doing it for the Lord. That's the motivation. Lord, I want to honor you in everything I do. I want to know your perfect will for my life. I happen to be female. I happen to be a wife. What's your will? First of all, I should submit to my husband. So your, your motivation is to do it for the Lord himself. Now, there are two subsidiary reasons for submission. We're taught submission first on a natural order and then on a supernatural order. And we see that in this passage that uh, Paul writes to us. He says, first of all, in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife. Now, we learn about submission from the natural order of things. And then second, secondly, from the supernatural order of things. Let's look at the natural order of things first. If you go back to the book of Genesis, who was created first, the man or the woman? The man. Is that arbitrary? No, it's part of God's design. Could he have created the woman first? Yes. Did he? No. God is not whimsical. He's not arbitrary. Everything he does, he does with purpose. He created the man first. Where did the woman come from? God, the man's foot, right? No. God, the writer says that God took some stuff out of the middle part of the man. We translate it as a rib. That's a poor translation. He took a substantial amount of stuff, the Some people, you heard the saying, where's your better half? That's where that came from. Always refers to the wife, doesn't it? (laughs) At least that's how I've always understood it. He took a substantial portion out of the middle part of the man, out of his side, and he fashioned that into a woman. The the, The idea of taking it out of the side was she was to stand right next to him. Before he makes the woman, God has made the man. He puts him in the garden. He gives him dominion over creation. Man has dominion over the creation. God designed you to help us run things. 
Now, there's another interesting development in that passage, the second chapter of Genesis. God brings all the animals to the man. The woman's not even created yet, but he brings all the animals. And as a demonstration that God has given him dominion and he intends for the man to take dominion, man names all the animals. The woman doesn't name them. God doesn't name them. He has handed the man the responsibility for governing creation. Awesome responsibility. And implied in the naming process is authority. I have authority. When you name your children, you're indicating you have authority over your children. So that when the woman is created later on, God brings the woman to the man. You know what the man does? He names her. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. The man has implied authority over the woman. Now that's before the fall. That's before the fall. They were both equal in terms of their value, but they have different roles and responsibilities even before the fall. And yet the man still has authority over. He has charged with the responsibility, he has the authority to take care of her, to provide for her, and to protect her. Just like he has the responsibility and the authority over the rest of creation. Does he do that? No. No, he doesn't. It's after the fall that we have the beginning of the battle of the sexes, not before the fall. So we learn from creation, as we evaluate and look at creation, that there is, a, there is an order. God has created this order. Paul underscores this when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, he tells us, that the head of the man is Christ, that the head of the woman is the man, and that the head of Christ is God, God the Father. And that the whole passage, if you read it in context, what he's describing in, this, in terms of this hierarchy, if you will, for lack of a better word, this order, this particular design and structure to relationship, what he's describing in that whole passage is voluntary submission. That the man voluntarily submits to Christ as Christ has voluntarily submitted to the Father and so also the wife voluntarily submits to the husband. Without that voluntary submission you do not have these relationships functioning Unless Christ willingly, voluntarily submitted to the Father, the work of salvation, the work of redemption could have never been accomplished. The Father didn't twist Jesus' arm and say, now I want you to go down there and do this. Do you know what I'm saying? See, the whole context of that passage in 1 Corinthians 11 is one of voluntary submission, and he gives us these examples. And right in the smack in the middle of that example, he says, and the head of the woman is the man. And so we see from the natural order of things how uh, the woman now has reason 
to submit. After the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, the fall from the state of perfection to imperfection, after Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed God and sought to become independent, you have a great increase in the woman's subordination to the man. Let me describe it to you. Adam and Eve are being confronted by the serpent. The serpent is speaking to Eve. He's tempting her. For years, before I ever read the Bible, though I knew the story of Adam and Eve, I always thought Adam was off in the garden being cool, doing what he was supposed to be doing. Until I read the Bible, and I discovered he was there the whole time. Turkey. But you see, here she is, and, and she rationalizes and goes ahead and makes this decision. And she takes the fruit, she eats it, and she gives it to her husband who is with her, and he ate it also. That's what the account says. But you see, what happens there, God is now going to pronounce on the woman the consequence of her decision to disobey God. The consequence includes three things. First of all, he says, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. Apparently, childbearing was not to be a painful experience. It was to be a very pleasurable experience. But because of the fall, because of the disobedience, now it is very, very painful. And yet, in spite of that pain, God says, and yet your desire will still be for your husband. I've heard some horror stories out of the delivery rooms. The gal is in excruciating labor. And in these days, now the husband gets to be in there and help out and coach. And that's a tremendous experience. But I've heard some horror stories where some gals have gone through this incredible pain and grief of delivering a baby. And, you know, all they can do is say, you're not getting near me ever again. No more. We're not going through this again. Now, of course, you know, a few weeks, months subside, and that's out the window. <laughs> Though the pain is greatly increased, yet your desire will be for your husband. And then look at this. And then God says, and he will rule over you. You see, there's a great increase in the subordination now of the woman to the man. Not the original purpose, but it's an effect of the fall. There's a distortion now in, in the degree of this subordination process. Let me ask you this question. What if the wife is much more able than the husband? What if she is much more gifted? What if she is much more talented? What if she is a spiritual giant and the husband isn't? What then? What do we do then? Well, you see, the wife, if she really understands her role, she can take all the giftedness, all the abilities, all the glorious things that God has blessed her with, and she can put them, devote them, to building up this guy. You with me? Rather than demeaning him, rather than putting him down, rather than tearing him apart, rather than mocking him and ridiculing him, Build him up. 
pour all of your energy and the abilities and talents that God has given you into this man's life so that he can be all that God wants him to be. That he can carry out the role that's been assigned to him. He didn't ask for it. He got it. And God expects him to carry it out. But he needs help. He needs help. If you're a single woman contemplating marriage in the near future or sometimes off in the distance, do not, I repeat, do not contemplate marrying without being prepared to voluntarily submit. Oh, that'd be easy. I can do that, sure. <laughs> right. How many married ladies do we have here this morning? If you're single, talk to one of these ladies. <laughs> Any other idea is contrary to the will of God and is sin. If you're going into a marriage and you think this is a, a full-on equal partnership and we're both the same, and forget it. Because you're only setting yourself up for trouble. There are specific roles and specific responsibilities assigned to the husband and to the wife. And women today must acknowledge and they must implement this role of voluntary submission. And if they do not, they set themselves up, they set that marriage up, and they set those children up for chaos in that marriage. Believe me, who, who is charged with the primary responsibility for caring with the children? Who does it fundamentally fall to in those early formative years? Mama, right? Kids naturally gravitate towards ma mom. Why? It's because mom has this special nurturing ability that God has built into them that, that can nurture children up to the age seven, eight, nine years old. Then you begin to see the kids drift towards dad. That doesn't mean that the dad doesn't have anything to do with the kids early on. It's the mother who has the primary influence in the lives of those children. In those formative years, what are they going to be learning from you? An independent, autonomous attitude? We had a book of the month a couple of years ago called Sexual Eclipse. Tremendous book. And the author had a couple of chapters on submission. And he made a very bold and daring statement in one of those chapters. He said that if you have rebellious children, it is primarily due because you have a rebellious mother. That's not being derogatory, it's just stating a fact. You've, chances are you've got a mother in that home who doesn't understand and is not living out biblical principles of submission. If she is submitting, she's doing so under protest. Or she is contesting the process. And those kids are picking it up. They don't learn how to submit to appropriate authority. We cannot afford to trivialize these things. 
Once we lose sight of God-given authority in the home, the basic unit of society, the resultant effect is chaos in society. Absolute chaos. Now there's a supernatural view. We learn submission from a supernatural view of creation. We looked at the natural order of things. Let's look at the supernatural order of things. And that's reflected in our Ephesians passage also. Not only is the husband the head of the wife, he is so as Christ is the head of the church. The church is a supernatural creation. It's not a human invention. God has created the church. And the head of the church is who? Jesus Christ. The head is, is, is a... Is a a metaphorical term, if you will. Symbolic, representing the governing organ. And as Christ is the head of the church, the husband is the head of the wife. As the church submits to Christ, the wife submits to the husband. Do you see that? So from the natural perspective of things and the supernatural perspective of things, we understand this is God's design, this is God's order. We can't argue with it. We have to embrace it for our own good. The relationship between a wife and a husband is something like that between Christ and the church. And Paul says in verse 32, that relationship between Christ and the church is a mystery. Jesus is the savior of the body, and so also, by implication, the husband is the savior of the wife. Now, I want you to think of that word savior not with its, its normal connotation. I want you to connote it in a little bit different way. I want you to think of it this way. Christ is the preserver of the body. And by implication, the husband then would be the preserver of the wife, the protector of the wife, the caregiver for the wife. That is God's design. That is the relationship. As Christ ministers to the church, so does the husband to the wife. Now the wife is not to be passive. When we talk about being submissive, that doesn't mean passive. That doesn't mean you just lay down and say, well, all right, I'll just submit. I won't say anything. I won't be involved. Because some women react. Being submitted does not mean passive. It's not passivity. You say, well, am I, do I, should I speak up? Do I, am I entitled to opinions? Absolutely. He needs your input. You need to share with him what you think. You need to share with him your perceptions. And sometimes you need to share in a strong way. but always with the perspective that he has the last word. I have the last word in our house. Yes, dear. <laughs> My wife has taught me well. No, you're not to be passive. But to be submitted means this, that you don't initiate. You don't take the lead. You don't usurp the leadership. You don't act before. You don't act independently of. Nor do you hinder or delay actions 
that the husband deems important. You may think that what he wants to do is absolutely absurd, and it may be absurd. But wives, after you've given your input, and if there's still disagreement, the Bible says submit to your husband. Why? Because you trust the Lord. Because you trust the Lord. Not be passive. Submission is not passivity. The initiative and leadership are ultimately the husband's. But always with your input and your perspective, you're his helper, his helpmate. The woman in the garden never should have responded to the serpent. Her response, if she would have had to respond to the serpent, she should have said, excuse me, I do not make those decisions in our house. You'll have to speak to my husband. (laughs) But you see, there's a leadership vacuum there for a moment. This guy was a little slow on the uptake. He should have jumped right in there immediately and said, get out of here, you snake. Leave my wife alone. But because he didn't, you see, when any time there's a leadership vacuum, guess who jumps in there real quick? Mama. Why? Because mom feels insecure. Women struggle with security. They want to feel safe. They want to make sure everything's okay. Men don't struggle with security issues. They struggle with adequacy issues. Am I significant? Am I adequate? woman doesn't struggle with it. She wants to feel safe and secure. So if she thinks for a moment this guy is not going to make her feel secure, not going to contribute to her sense of security and safety, she's got to do something. She'll get in there and control the situation. That has resulted in the emasculation of more husbands than I care to think about. How many wives have you heard this from your husbands? Don't worry about it. Have you heard that? It's okay. Don't worry about it. (laughs) What do you mean? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's under control. Right? But you gals are going... (laughs) And the husband says, don't do anything. It's under control. And it's driving you right up a tree, right? That's exactly what happened in the garden. That's why it's important for you to understand God's in control. You may not see it all. Submit to your husband because your submission is an act of trust in the Lord. Don't act independently. Don't get in there ahead of your husband. If he won't act, encourage him to act. Learn how to create incentive for your husband. That's an art, by the way. Paul concludes this passage and he says this, that wives should submit to their husbands in everything. In everything. Wait a minute. In everything? Yes and no. There are some things 
that are just almost too ludicrous to mention, but we have to mention them. You are not to submit to things that are illegal, immoral, or unconscionable. You are not to submit to an insane person. Yes, that's true. That's true. Use wisdom. Use wisdom. There are opinions and there are matters of conscience. Sometimes we confuse the two and the, the distinction is blurred. You may hold an opinion very strongly and share an opinion. That may not be something that is a matter of conscience. You may give way on an opinion, but not on a matter of conscience. Not on a matter of conscience. Very important. So do you submit on everything? Nearly, except for those exceptions. There's another area that you don't submit, and that is an area in which your husband interferes with your relationship with the Lord. Now, I had a, a letter a couple of years ago. Actually, yeah, about a couple of years ago now. A lady wrote me, and she told me that her husband, she'd been a Christian for several years, her husband now was forbidding her to come to church. He was not a believer. And she said, what should I do? I telephoned her, and I said, who else have you spoken to, and what, else, what other advice have you gotten? She said, well, she says, I've spoken to several of my friends, my Christian lady friends, and they've said to me that I should disobey my husband, I should go to church anyway, because he's interfering with my relationship with the Lord. I said to her, submit to your husband. But he's not a believer! Submit to your husband. Honor your husband. Go to your husband and tell him, I'm going to do what you ask because I love you and because I'm submitted to the Lord and the Lord would have me submit to you. And don't do it under protest. Don't do it with a crabby attitude. Don't mope around the house with a long face. Don't suck your thumb. Submit to your husband. I was the one lone dissenting voice in all the advice she got. I explained to her, coming to church is not necessarily interfering in your personal relationship with the Lord. He's not forbidding you to get together with other Christian women. You can pray with them on the phone. Where two or more are gathered in Jesus' name, you have church. And though it's a desirable thing for you to come, though it's a wonderful thing for you to come, it's not absolutely essential in this particular situation at this particular point in time in your life. Submit to your husband. Oh, it was agony. But then she decided, okay, I'll do it. And she did it. And she began to honor her husband. She began to minister to him. She began to pour her energy and her life into this man like never before because she was serving the Lord. And it was in the sight of three months, three months, he was sitting right there in the front row, weeping, receiving Christ. And he said to me categorically, he said, if it hadn't been for what you told my wife, I wouldn't be here today. 
She showed me something that I never believed was possible. She honored me. Took away my fire. Took away my arguments. I couldn't fight against the Lord and his love through her. Wives, submit to your husbands. Submit to your husbands. I can't emphasize it enough. Do all that you can. Go to the extreme limit of submitting to your husband for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. Now to any wife who's having trouble in this area, let me suggest something to you. Ask yourself this. Why did I originally marry this man? Why did I originally marry this guy? When I stood up there that day pronouncing those vows, I said, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, richer or poorer, till death do us part. I always ask married people that. Did, I, did you say those things when you married that person? Yes. Did you mean them? Yes. Why'd you marry that person? If you meant it then, can't you still mean it today? It's not dependent on that person. It's dependent on you. On your choices, your decisions, your perspectives. Those same things can be restored today with God's help. God wants to bless. Do you know that? He's in the blessing business. I said, pray for your husband. Begin to look at him with compassion. Look at him as a person who is afraid, a person who feels inadequate, a person who doesn't have all the answers, though he thinks he does. Pray for him. And don't pray, God change my husband. Pray this way, God bless my husband. Bless my husband with wisdom. Bless my husband with spiritual understanding. Bless my husband, Lord, with, with strength, with courage. Bless my husband, Lord. Intercede for your husband if you're having trouble in this area. Change the whole focus of your thinking. I have one last passage I want to share with you quickly. And that is in 1 Peter chapter 3. There's a parallel passage. Peter picks up the very same thing that Paul preaches about submission. And he does so in the context of his general discussion of submission. Chapter 3, he says, Wives, in the same way be submissive to your husbands, so that if any one of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without talk but by the behavior of their wives. And when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. A gentle and quiet spirit. That doesn't mean that you can't speak. That doesn't mean that you're passive. 
what he is describing there is a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit, a person who is experiencing the peace of God in their life. You can't ruffle that person. They don't panic. Do you know what the opposite of a gentle and quiet spirit is? Proverbs gives it to us. Proverbs 21.19. Let me read it to you. Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife. That's the NIV translation. The New American translation is a little bit more colorful. Better to live in a desert than with a contentious and vexing woman. Contentiousness and vexatiousness are the opposite of gentle and quiet spirit. The opposite. A contentious woman is one who makes it, in any way, makes it her goal to change her husband and therefore tries to control him. I'll change you if it's the last thing. I'll change this guy. I'm going to change him. Boy, if it kills me, and it may, but I'm going to change him. And every time you set that as your goal, and it can be a very subtle thing, you're going to find yourself trying to control and manipulate this guy. And how many men are going to be controlled and manipulated? None! What do they do? They resist, don't they? They say, you're not going to control me. And so they resist. And every time they resist, the woman tries harder becomes more contentious to the point of becoming vexatious, ill-tempered, meaning to give a hard time to. All right? You're not going to do it my way? I'll get you. I'll show you. And the husband then has to deal with and contend with the cold shoulder, the hard, cold, icy stare... The tight lip, bitter sarcasm, demeaning statements. Well, if you were a man, if you would be the husband, ladies, don't be a contentious, vexatious woman. Because that guy in his thinking, you've got to know this, is going to be saying to himself, man, I'd rather be in the garage right now working with my tools. I'd rather be fishing right now. I'd rather be living in the desert than with this contentious and vexatious woman. Let's pray.